everybody, it's Helen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we rate your favorite animals out of 10 in the category of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try our hardest to bring the best information to you. And we're nice and hyped, because we just came in from a slug party that was happening (laughs) on our back porch. They were really, it was an absolute rager going Mm -hmm. on out there. Quite the diverse lineup, too, in terms of size of slug. Every shape and size of slug you could possibly dream of Mm -hmm. was represented on our back porch. It was fun. (laughs) It's been quite rainy, and so uh, (laughs) the slugs are loving it. Mm -hmm. They are here for it, and I'm here for them. The best new neighbors. (laughs) Yes, they're so good. (laughs) We've been quite charmed by the slug biodiversity up here in the Northwest. That's true. We only saw them occasionally in Florida. I know. And they were never like the big, giant, speckly looking ones. I don't think I ever even... I usually didn't even see the slug. I would just see the the shiny trail it left behind. Yeah, that's... Well, that is very fun. They're not very attention grabbing back home, though. These are like... I mean, it's hard not to see them. The biggins. (laughs) I did want to say that... We want to do a mailbag episode coming up here soon in the next couple of weeks. So if you, dear listeners, have anything that you want us to read on the show, send that to us. If it's maybe a cool animal that you had a cool experience seeing, a wildlife encounter you had, it does, doesn't have to be super recent, you know, just like anything you think we'd find cool and want to tell people about. Maybe it's, I don't know, an animal story or a nature story or... Anything that you would like to share with us, and we, it's not the same as our Q and A episode because we do a Q and A episode in the spring, and this is not that. This right. is more like passing you guys the mic. Y- y'all tell us what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> if you have anything you'd like us to share as part of that episode, please do send it to me. My email address is Ellen at justthezooofus.com. and please put the word mailbag in the subject. That will make email organization so much better Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. please put mailbag in the subject line i would really appreciate that now christian it is your turn to go first this week but i if you wouldn't mind a brief intrusion on your segment a lot of times i think that people maybe listen to the first segment and then maybe don't follow through on finishing with the second segment which i get sometimes maybe you don't have all that listening in you but i would really like to urge people to trust the process (laughs) (laughs) I would like to drop in some teasers about my segment. Okay. Just to entice people to stay through the whole episode mm-hmm. who might otherwise bail midway. Doesn't that get accomplished by the title of the episode? Perhaps? You wouldn't think that <laughs> if you, like me, are not from the place where these creatures are found, not okay. very familiar with them and their story and their context. You might look at it and be like, eh, what's there to that? I see. So, my animal for my segment is the rarest fish in the entire world. And my segment involves earthquakes, a Supreme Court case, and nuclear bombs. And those three things are not related. (laughs) (laughs) Three completely separate, unrelated mentions of those three things. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, just a little teaser to entice folks to see it through to the end. Mm. If you're going to if you're going to listen to one podcast episode the whole way through, let it be this one. All right. <laughs> so Christian, it is your turn to go first this week. Yeah. I'm very excited. What you got for us? This week I'm talking about the star-nosed mole. I have been really looking forward to this. Yeah. Scientific name Condylura cristata. I love a cristata. This that Species name has come up a few times. Has it? I think so. It sounds do you, familiar. Do you recall the etymology? Because I did not note it down. No, I remember it being <laughs> in the scientific name for the Ardwolf because it was Protelis cristata. And oh. I remember that because I sang it in my head to the tune of Hakuna Matata. Oh, really I see. I see. Yes. <laughs> Could you do that with this one? No, too many syllables. Sorry. Darn. Shoot. <laughs> We're going to need to send that one back to the scientific committee then and have them come up with a different genus name. This species was submitted by Divine Dowd. Thank you, Divine. And I'll be getting my information from Cardi... Cardi B? Yeah, Cardi B. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a get. Big name. You wouldn't imagine the number of emails that required. <laughs> No. 
long anticipated guest, everybody, please welcome Cardi B. <laughs> Carnegie Museum of Natural History. Okay. As well as Animal Diversity Web. So uh, first, let's talk about what a mole is. It is a mammal. Mm. They're relatively small. This by itself, it was a realization I had surprisingly recently. Okay. I was surprisingly old when i realized that moles were not house cat size oh, which no. is how big i thought they were <laughs> yeah i don't know why i thought they were like pretty chunky creatures no they're not they're mm-hmm. like they could fit in like the palm of your hand yeah they are pretty small and uh i mean many people probably go their entire lives without seeing a mole in person you could easily go your entire life without seeing a mole yeah so this one is found in eastern north america stopping just short again from where we were yeah but it also goes at the atlantic coast into canada okay Yes. And they're found in moist areas. So you'd think that's like perfect for Florida. I have, Can I pitch some real estate to Florida? I have some completely unfounded theories as to why they aren't in Florida. Really? What do you think we'll it is? We'll touch on that later. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. But first, the taxonomic family they belong to is Talpidae, or perhaps Talpidae. I never know how to pronounce it. I don't think it matters. It's fine. <laughs> Other things in that family are moles, of course, but... Not the golden mole that we discussed in episode 62. I remember this now. I remember there being some some taxonomy gatekeeping. Because that family of moles belongs to an entirely different order. Not just a family, but an order called Afrosaurichida. Huh. But just like arrived at the same body plan unrelated. Yeah. I think we went into a little bit more detail on this on the golden mole episode. Oh, so go back and listen to that. Yeah. We shan't rehash it here. From three years ago. (laughs) This one is, however, in the same order as hedgehogs. Really? Yes. So closer to a hedgehog than it is to the little (laughs) golden mole. Yeah. Aww. (laughs) They have this kind of pointed snout that ends in a, its namesake, a star nose, which is really a symmetrical flower of tentacles. That's <laughs> how I'll describe it. Mm, do you have to? A flower of a flower of tentacles. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I could totally write for Baldur's Gate. <laughs> it's so. Oh my gosh! With like the tentacles coming out of the face, this mm. is giving illithid. Yeah. It's so mind flayer. Yep. Yep. Very timely. <laughs> Congrats on the game of the year, by the way, Baldur. Congratulations. Very well earned. (laughs) So, to dig into our first category. To dig in. (laughs) Very intentional. For sure. And for our newer listeners, perhaps, our first category of effectiveness describes physical attributes that the animal has that helps it do the things it needs to do from a day-to-day basis. I'm giving a full 10 out of 10. Really? Yes. There's something very bizarre happening with this animal, and I don't fully know what it is, but it's got to be something weird. It's the first thing I'm talking about. (laughs) What do you think of when you think of moles? When I think of moles, I think of little guys. Mm -hmm. They're furry, and they dig tunnels in the ground, Mm -hmm. and they make little mounds of dirt on the ground that I associate my grandfather coming out into his yard and being incredibly angry that his well-maintained and manicured lawn was disheveled (laughs) by little trails of moles. And the only time I ever have seen a mole is when there was one on a sidewalk that a dog had dug up. Yes, that has been the same way I've seen them as well. (laughs) Dog related. Dogs are really, they have it out for moles. But that's what I think of, digging little tunnels in people's yards. Then you will find this as surprising as i did oh they are semi-aquatic what that yep. was what <laughs> now this... that wasn't the word i thought you were gonna say you could have said arboreal and it would have been the same <laughs> amount of surprise from me <laughs> they're flighted actually no um this specific species is semi-aquatic which is unusual <laughs> for the other north american mole it doesn't seem like they would go there they're surprisingly well built for it really yeah so first, they have a waterproof coat. Aww. Yeah. I guess you would have to. They have these big paws that have these big claws that are really good for digging. Right. But what they're also good for is paddling. Huh. I guess 
it seems like a similar structure, uh-huh. right? Like it would be good for both things. I guess it totally makes sense now that you explain it that way. And when you see them swimming, the, the way they paddle makes them do this little zigzag pattern <gasps> in the water. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me think of a platypus almost. Yeah. Like how a platypus kind of paddles around. Mm-hmm. But it does have like, now that I think of it, like that big broad sort of paw is, is kind of like a like a duck's foot or something. A little bit. Um, is it webbed? No, it's not webbed. Oh. They're just big and broad. Huh. The front ones are bigger, but the back ones aren't small either. Mm. Now, here's another thing. They have twice the lung capacity of other moles. Really? Yes. Oh, so they're like going the distance. <laughs> it's not just a little, I'll quick pop into the pond real quick uh-huh. for a quick dip. They're actually like hanging out in there. Yes. Wow. Uh, they have a long tail that acts as a rudder. Oh, man. And that's very different from other moles. Yes, like with basically no tail. Right. right? It actually spends most of its time foraging in water. What? Yes. But the... <laughs> but their whole thing right <laughs> no. no so i did not think this was gonna be the first thing you were gonna talk about i thought the first thing you were gonna talk about was gonna be what's going on with their face that's a secondary in my opinion <laughs> it seems pretty like you look at him and you're like that surely now don't get me wrong this thing does dig tunnels does all the mole things that okay. you probably think of but it's just spending a huge amount of its time in water, too, when it can. This is the upgraded model. <laughs> this is the amphibious vehicle. Yeah. They've even been seen swimming under ice. Now, that takes, like, a specialization, right? <laughs> like, to swim in, like, cold water mm-hmm. that's under ice. Like, seals do this, right? Like, you have to be, like, smart about it. Well, they have an advantage that I'll talk about oh. in our others category of ingenuity oh i can't wait yeah now here's their last little thing that makes them especially good in the water uh-huh. they can smell underwater now how are you gonna do like a shark <laughs> it's different here's what they do they blow bubbles <gasps> and then breathe those bubbles back in and those bubbles collect little you know particles as they uh, in between and it's sniffing that air as it breathes it back in. are you kidding me that is hilarious <laughs> I'm so sad that people listening can't see the faces I've been making yeah. because this is, I'm floored. Usually for mammals that adapt into an aquatic lifestyle, mm-hmm. what they have to do is figure out how to close off their nose when they get into the water, right? Like a seal or an otter or something, they usually have some sort of like function that lets their nose close up so they're not mm-hmm. getting water in. But they have sort of gone a different direction. They're like, well, hold on, hold on. Maybe we'll need this. <laughs> this could be to our advantage. Like, that's really cool. I don't know of any other aquatic mammal that like is able to really take advantage of smell like that in the water. I do wonder. I, I wonder if it other things do and it just wasn't, as, it didn't stand out as strongly as it did mm. for this animal. I don't yeah. know. So, yeah, it has these tentacles, which it has 22 of those tentacles, um, and it's uh, symmetrical, so it has 11 on each side. Now, each of those is covered in something called Amers, or perhaps Imers, organs, and those have three types of tactile receptors. Oh, I see. Yeah. It's very sensitive. Yes. So two of those are found in the skin of other mammals, but the third is unique to this species. Wake up, babe. <laughs> New tactile receptor just yes. dropped. It's thought that the mole identifies things by feeling their microscopic texture with that receptor. Oh, wow. Yes. Like feeling like things in the water or just things that it's like brushing up against? Could be prey, for example. Mm. What is at the microscopic level (laughs) that like you're not going to be able to figure out already just by touching it? Like what more information could I be giving you? You know how you feel about suede (laughs) or uh, wait, what what is it? Velvet. Velvet. That's (laughs) it. (laughs) What a horrible, horrible burden this creature has been cursed with. (laughs) That can feel awful, awful, icky textures. I don't, it's probably not awful to it if I had to guess. I hate velvet. (laughs) So, yeah, it does have a a fairly good sense of smell, but the star part of its nose is all about feeling touch, tactile response. Interesting. Yeah. A large part of the mole's brain is dedicated to processing this tactile info, actually. It could potentially also detect electrical signals, which would be useful in the water. This is shark. This is shark behavior. (laughs) And would also be the only mammal alongside the platypus that would be able to do this. And that makes sense for the platypus also being, you know, a semi-aquatic, like, mammal that forages in the Mm -hmm, water. mm -hmm. Interesting. That's an interesting convergence between the two. Right. 
It's kind of like our platypus. It's a, our furry little water guy. A little bit, yeah. With a weird nose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they have itty bitty tiny eyes. Little, little tiny eyes. Oh. Yeah. Can't see nothing. No. They're known as the fastest eating mammal. That seems like... <laughs> this seems like a high school yearbook honorific that they were like, we don't know what else to say about this. Put the most Tootsie Rolls in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like at the end of like the school year when they're giving out like awards to all the kids and they mm-hmm. have to like think of something to say. <laughs> <laughs> Sharpened the most pencils this year, but for them it's like you're the fastest eating. Good job. <laughs> they would wreck in a hot dog eating contest. Yeah, though. for sure. Like, I'm talking a lot of trash, but like, as humans, this is clearly a skill that we highly value because we do <laughs> hold tournaments about it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the um, fossil record would show, I'm sure. <laughs> so... Its eyesight, of course, um, to go with a stereotype, is poor. Uh, it may only be useful for sensing light and dark. I, yeah, I mean, really, like, when they're spending so much... Well, I was going to say they're spending all their time underground, but, I mean, they're spending a lot of time in the water, too. Yeah. So yeah. that would be good for basically just telling whether you're covered or not. Mm-hmm. Like, am I exposed? Am I out in the open? Do I need to go hide? Right. They likely have good hearing based on the anatomy of their ear structures compared to other moles. And their newborns are born blind and hairless. And also their nose tentacles are folded back on their snout. Oh, they're not ready. Oh, it's like a little, like a little flower that hasn't bloomed yet. Oh my God, that's so cute. (laughs) But if I had to guess, that probably had to do with efficiency getting through the birth canal. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Why'd you ruin it? Mine was cuter. Mine was way cuter. So they get as they get older, the tentacles unfold, and then they open their eyes and mm. they grow in hair and all that. You could really call them a late bloomer. Yeah. Um, all so that like puberty, like flower imagery that people always use. Yeah. You're blossoming. I hate it. Hate it. Hate <laughs> it's gross. It. It's the worst. I would rather anything else. <laughs> a loaf of bread. Oh, baking. Oh, <laughs> like puberty is like the dough is proving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> underproved. It's underproved. <laughs> so I mentioned I had a completely unfounded guess as to yeah. why they're not further south in the United States on the east coast. Do you coast. think they get eaten by gators? Yes, I think they would get eaten by gators. <laughs> <laughs> and other water predators. Well, okay, now that I have the context that they spend time in water, yeah. that's exactly where you don't want to be. <laughs> In Florida. Yeah. There's stuff in there that will definitely eat a little guy. Yeah. Water moccasin would love the opportunity, I'm sure. <laughs> They'd be so sad. I thought you were going to say, because I didn't know they spent time in the water, mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say that the soil was too sandy for them to like dig a tunnel. Maybe. And I like mean, it would just collapse. Again, that's a total guess on my part. Right. I, I didn't even Google this. This is just... <laughs> <laughs> Vibes only. Yeah. It's just a conversation topic. It's, it's just not giving <laughs> Florida. <laughs> They're weird enough. They can hang. That's all right. So that wraps up effectiveness. Wow. Moving on to ingenuity. I'm giving an 8 out of 10 okay. for ingenuity. And with ingenuity, we are talking about smart things they do. Could be tool use. Could be interesting hunting methods. That sort of thing. First thing I want to talk about is their tunnel digging. The thing that you probably think about when you think of moles. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting back into like normal mole territory. Yes. So we talked about the tools. Now let's talk about the method. Yeah, please. Those tunnels they dig can be up to 270 meters long which is about two and a half American football fields. <laughs> Thank you for the <laughs> unit conversion that I'll understand. <laughs> How many school buses is that? <laughs> so many. Uh, the depth of those tunnels can be anywhere from three to 60 centimeters or almost two feet deep and only occasionally comes close enough to the surface to cause a raised ridge. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. That doesn't go as deep as I thought it would. Yeah. It sounds like it's like a vast network that just doesn't, it's like it's like a puddle. It's like wide, but right. not deep. That seems to be contrary to other North American moles, from mm. what I understand. Interesting. Yeah. It's kind of like how a lot of times people expect uh, tree roots to like go as far down under the ground as like the crown of the tree might like extend far up, right? right. But like if you really once you see a tree uprooted, you realize that it's more like just a giant disc. <laughs> yeah, which is a big deal with when people talk about cutting through tree roots for things like construction and that mm, sort of thing. Yeah. 
Or like if you're planning on um, building anything near a tree, you mm. have to keep in mind like how far out the, the roots are spreading, not right. down. Right. Especially when we talk about house foundations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my One of my favorite descriptors in the Lord of the Rings books is the talking. Oh boy, here he goes. <laughs> Is talking is when Tolkien talks about the Ents attacking or marching on uh, Isengard. Mm. They they talk about that process of trees growing roots into rock and then like slowly breaking apart. But with this, yeah. they were doing it in like fast forwarding it. That's like, cool uh, as a way to like just ripping off chunks of rock to throw them. <laughs> I always think of that description when when the real world situation comes up. Yeah. During our wedding ceremony, we had a Tolkien poem read that was yes about trees that whose roots had grown together mm-hmm. it's really sweet some of that classic tolkien tree imagery for sure dude loved trees <laughs> dude was so into it you could tell he was rooting for the trees oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay back to the moles yes we, yes, gotta, yes. we, we gotta stop <laughs> all right now here's their advantage with other aquatic and semi-aquatic mammals mm-hmm. many of their tunnels open up into bodies of water it seems like that wouldn't be what you would want your tunnel to open into. It seems like if you're... Okay, so if I'm playing Minecraft uh-huh. and I'm digging a tunnel and I start seeing those little drip drip of like there's water nearby, <laughs> yeah. I'm going the other way. That's not where you want to be. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, I imagine these tunnels would be built such that, you know, the, the entrance into water is probably going to be the lowest point mm. in their tunnel system. Interesting, because that gives them kind of like a like a water escape. Yes, Kind of back and forth and and out of the water. Huh. They're like really taking advantage of both of their like home turfs, I guess. Like they're comfortable in either one. So they're really Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. taking advantage of both. That's really cool. Yeah. They leave behind something called molehills. You've probably heard of because when they dig dirt, that dirt has to go somewhere (laughs) despite what cartoons and things might show. (laughs) (laughs) They'll kind of excavate this dirt to the surface a lot of the times, leaving behind just a pile of dirt. Those are what we call molehills. Hmm. I guess I thought the mole hill was the little mound that was raised from their tunnel. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought the mole hill was. That would make sense, too, to me. But I guess not. <laughs> and they will actually make a spherical nest in the tunnels lined with dry leaves and grass. Aww. And they also make sure that that is above, like, the water table part of their tunnel. I would hope so, yeah. <laughs> it's want... a valuable real estate. Yes. It's so, uh, that's so cottage core. Mm-hmm. So shire very hobbit got your little <laughs> circular nest like underground that's very now, hobbit the hobbit hole was specifically described as not being a dark and dank hole in the ground okay. with earthworms <laughs> do you have a copy of, do you have a copy of the lord of the rings over there that you read before this <laughs> that one's from the hobbit actually oh my god <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, at least. <laughs> um, now, these moles are also more active on the surface than their other North American counterparts, meaning they'll sometimes be spotted just kind of running across the surface. Oh, great. Awesome. That wouldn't be alarming at all. You see this little Cthulhu monster squirming around. Yeah. Like, I don't think so. They'll even burrow through snow. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you? That seems fun, right? <laughs> that must be a strange experience for them, not being able to see it very well. And it's like, this feels very different from dirt. Ground but cold? <laughs> <laughs> Don't know. Don't like it. Next thing I want to talk about is their diet is mostly invertebrates. So uh, like many moles, they patrol their tunnels looking for earthworms entering their tunnel to slurp them up. Oh, those poor earthworms. They have no idea what's going on. They're just squirming around. Yeah. But this mole actually prefers aquatic prey when available. Uh, That includes things like aquatic worms, like leeches. Leeches! Yes. Throwback to last (laughs) week's episode when we figured out that they're worms. Yes. So this was very timely. (laughs) We did it. Uh, Also aquatic insects and their larvae, mollusks, and even small fish. All the wet noodles. Yeah. What is a pond but a big old bowl of noodles? For someone. It itself is hunted by things like birds of prey, cats, dogs, and mustelids. Oh, yeah. That Well, I mean. <laughs> Everything's fair game. Every, everything below a certain size is, is on the menu. I'm pretty sure if I had a particularly bad day, I would be on the menu. If you catch them at the wrong time. Yeah. 
So that wraps up ingenuity. Our last category is aesthetics, talking about what they look like. Mm, let's hear it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving a six out of ten. That's generous. That's very kind <laughs> of you. Um, so they have interesting proportions, as I'll put it. Mm-hmm. Very broad in the front, and then kind of tapers off as you go back. That snout with the tentacles is something. It's a lot to sort of process. Yeah. Their claws are kind of scaly around like the skin part of their claws, mm. not not unlike rodent tails, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that doesn't that doesn't really land for a lot of people, especially me. I'm not. I'm really not bothered by it. I don't it. know what it is. It's just not the sort of thing I'm very bothered by. I'm googling a picture of them because I don't remember exactly what they look. And and this is what you're giving a six. <laughs> a six, really? I think the saving grace is I bet their fur is very soft. It's okay. Yeah, you. It's probably is very very soft. Oh, you know what is something that I did? You come across anything about the the direction of their fur? No. So I don't know if this applies to the star nosed mole specifically, but a lot of moles their fur lays flat in any direction hmm. it doesn't have like a, against the grain sort of like right. any way that you pet their fur it will lay flat mm-hmm. and the idea is that this means that they can scoot backwards out of a like a narrow tunnel and their fur won't like get all snagged and tangled in it oh that's helpful isn't that cool yeah i think that's a neat little thing about mole fur hmm. they look very shiny and shiny fur i guess implies softness to me so i bet it does feel like velvet though it, Mm, it looks too long to feel like velvet. I, at least maybe that's just wishful. Like my mind wants to reject <laughs> any sort of instance of a velvet texture from sure. me. Yeah, I don't know. It's not it. This is not it. <laughs> and then to wrap things up here, their conservation status. So they are a little hard to find, but it's not because there's not that many of them. It's just they're normally in the water or underground. Mm. <laughs> so conservation-wise, they're actually of least concern. The last little thing here, one notable thing I remember seeing about them in the media uh, has to do in a work of fiction in Avatar The Last Airbender. I was going to ask about this. Yes. So there is a fictional animal in that show called the Shear Shoe. So first of all, the show has very many fictional animals that are just combos of other real animals it's pretty good yes i like the turtle ducks yes now the sheer shoe is one of the rare three combo animals in the show Mm. (laughs) Uh, this one is a combination of uh, this species the giant anteater and a wolf the wolf seems like a real sort of out of left field one for the because the 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 mole and the anteater. Okay, I can kind of see. Yeah, they eat bugs. All right, you could slap those <laughs> together, and then they have the big claws on the front. Like, okay, I yeah, could yeah, I yeah. could see a a cool fusion of those. The wolf kind of throws things. Looking at a picture of a, that came into play with I think the feet design, and then mm. also the top of the head and teeth uh, is sure. what they is what they gave it for for a wolf because the way that's it, depicted in the show is like a, this animal that's very good at smelling and tracking things down mm. and has the star nose on, on the end of it and has like a venom of some sort that can paralyze oh that's fun <laughs> sure why not so there was a very interesting character who rode around on one of those and they actually tried to use it to uh to find ang at one point yeah so yeah did the sheer shoe tie into the badger moles no those are separate oh interesting yeah. they did a really cool thing with the badger moles the badger moles were the sort of pioneers of earthbending. Right. And they were like the ones that figured out earthbending. And then that ties in later to Toph, who's an earthbender, but she's blind and she uses earthbending to like sense her environment, right. just like the moles. Which honestly, the star mole would make more sense to use for that. You think so? Because of the tactile like feeling that it oh, uses. That's, and that's yeah. how Toph sees, right? Which like basically touch and how they describe it as something of like echolocation, which is different. But well, she's like feeling vibrations. Right. From the ground around her. Yeah, yeah. It was a really cool tie-in, like tying in like the moles which navigate through the earth without using their eyes. I thought that was a really cool like thing that they did yes. with those. But yes. I like the sheer shoe too. That's cool. Yep. Oh, and it had the big tail like the giant anteater. Oh. So that was another cool thing about it. I love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> what delightful nerds they had working for the last airbender yes. people. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, that is the Star Nose Mole. How delightful. Thank you so much, darling. Mm-hmm. I loved that. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Maximum Fun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. Perfect. 
If you're black, you probably love you some Paramore, huh? Or what about the TV show Golden Girls? Ginger Ale? Daytime television? Don't lie. I know you love at least one of them. I'm Sequoia Holmes, pop culturist and host of Black People Love Paramore. Contrary to the title, it is not a podcast about the band Paramore. Each episode, I, along with the special guest co-host, dissect one pop culture topic that mainstream media doesn't necessarily associate with Black people, but we know we like. Tune in every other Thursday to the podcast that's dedicated to helping Black people feel more seen. Black People of Paramore is now on the Maximum Fun Network. Check out the most recent episode featuring Shar Jassel today. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say Bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week for My Brother, My Brother, and Me. So, you hinted at it. What you got? This is the Devil's Hole Pupfish. Scientific name, Cyprinodon diabolus, which is a cool name, I think. Yes. Uh, The species was submitted by Jack McFarlane. And then uh, Taylor Spies, who requested desert pupfish in general. This is like one of the desert pupfish. Okay. Um, I'm just kind of focusing on the one that is... There's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you mm-hmm. you were watching me earlier today, desperately trying to finish up my notes, which really, rather than just finishing my notes, that was just me desperately trying to figure out when to stop taking notes. Like, I had <laughs> to just cut it somewhere. Yeah. I was like, I can't keep, I was at four pages. I was like, I can't. <laughs> right, <laughs> I have right. to stop somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm getting my information from the National Park Service. A PBS article titled Mojave Project Divining Devil's Hole by Kim Stringfellow in October of 2015. This was an incredible article, really, really long, really in-depth, went into like the geology, the history, Mm -hmm, everything mm -hmm. like that. Great article. And then other papers that I'll cite as they come up. All right. So the Devil's Hole pupfish is, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, the world's rarest fish they are an average size of one inch long which is 2.3 centimeters little males are a beautiful iridescent blue Mm. like shimmery metallic bright like electric blue um females can also be blue but they're also like a dull sort of yellowish brown they have short round fins and a sort of defining trait that sets the species apart from other similar related fish is that they don't have uh, pelvic fins, which are the fins that are usually directly underneath the pectoral fins. So mm. you'll see the pectoral fins, which is what we might think of as being analogous to like arms. Right. And then like on the bottom of the fish directly underneath that, there will be a little set of pelvic fins. They don't mm. have those. Hmm. The entire species, every single individual of this entire species is found in Devil's Hole, which is a pool of water in a limestone cave in Death Valley National Park. Wow. Devil's Hole is within the Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge. The entire species lives in this one pool. This is the smallest habitat of any known vertebrate species. Huh. The surface of the pool is about the width and length of a single wide trailer. Wow. It is literally like a pool right like it is tiny it is so little and that is where the entire species is found it's their it's their little blue dot it is their little blue dot (laughs) their pale blue dot (laughs) they are a bunch of pale blue dots inside a bigger pale blue dot inside of a bigger pale blue dot it's blue dots all the way down But beneath the surface, the hole extends down into a branching system of caverns and chambers. Mm. The bottom of the system has never been found. No idea how deep it goes. Uh, I bet, I'm betting that's not for a lack of trying, or is so, it? So, <laughs> in 1965, 
search and rescue divers dove mm-hmm. into Devil's Hole, attempting to locate missing teenagers oh. who disappeared after diving into Devil's Hole. Okay. Generally speaking, from, from what I've heard and read, cave diving is especially dangerous, even I, for professionals. I would rather die. <laughs> There's no amount of money you could offer me on this planet to go cave diving. I simply wouldn't do it. (laughs) The teenagers were never found, but during the rescue dive, weighted lines were dropped to depths of over 1,200 feet. Whoa. And they still didn't find the bottom. Huh. Yeah. Divers dove to like around four to 500 feet, and they said they still couldn't see the bottom. Like, no idea how deep it goes, but it goes really deep. Now, the water in Devil's Hole stays about 92 degrees year-round. It is always hot. Yeah, it's pretty warm. Yeah, it's like body temperature, almost. It's like a, you know, hot tub, maybe. It's warmed geothermally. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, as water wells (laughs) up from the earth below. And the groundwater is called fossil water because it's believed to have entered the groundwater system from melting off of nearby mountaintops 10,000 years ago. So this is like Ice Age water that melted or precipitated into Mm -hmm. the groundwater system and is seeping up 10, 15,000 years later. And the groundwater is shared by springs and pools kind of all over the like Ash Meadows area in the Death Valley area. There's like this larger underground system. And just to confirm, this is a desert we're talking about. This is in Death Valley, which is is very much a desert. What you picture when you think of desert. Yes. (laughs) Extremely, extremely desert. This is like the desertest desert, which is kind of weird when you think of like a fish Mm -hmm. living in a desert. Like already a desert fish is kind of a strange thing to think about. But yeah. Um, Now, this whole like the groundwater being shared by the bigger like Death Valley area. This is important. I'm not just saying this to like set the stage. Remember this. This will come up later. Mm -hmm. And just before I move on from like explaining what Devil's Hole is, because I, I, much like the actual cave itself, there's so much more beneath the surface. Like once I started learning about it, I was like, are you what? And similarly, you maybe didn't find the bottom. <laughs> no, I didn't. I had to call it quits before I did. Uh, but just one last little thing that came up that I thought was too incredible for me to not mention. Uh, mm. Infamous cult leader, Charles Manson. Oh, <laughs> I mean, you know how I am. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I love I love cult stuff. But infamous cult leader Charles Manson was rumored to have spent a considerable amount of time trying to figure out a way to drain Devil's Hole because he thought there was a portal to the underworld at the bottom oh, of it. Oh, boy. Yeah. So that's fun. <laughs> Just a little mention. <laughs> um. So back to the fish. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. a little bit about Devil's Hole. Now you know what we're working with here. All right. The pupfish is a member of the taxonomic family Cyprinodontidae, which are the pupfish, a type of killifish. There are quite a few different species of pupfish. And pupfish in general, not just the species, became established in the Death Valley area about 10,000 years ago during a particularly wet period of time when the valley was filled with a huge body of water called Lake manly so if you were to go through a time machine ten thousand years in the past Mm -hmm. at death valley it was a lake okay when the valley dried up again and the water receded it left these pools of water behind in the caves Mm -hmm. so there's all these systems of like caves and stuff you know in the ground so when the water receded it left those bodies of water were now kind of cut off from each other you get these small enclosed pools Mm -hmm. now a 2016 study suggested that the pupfish became isolated in Devil's Hole less than 830 years ago. Oh. Which is not very long at all. Yeah. That's not that much time, especially to see a whole new species emerge. Right. Like seeing an entire species diverge in less than a thousand years is really, really unusual. And since this was like well after the period of time when the cave would have been connected to other bodies of water, mm-hmm. it's kind of thought that the fish had to have dispersed over land somehow because they couldn't have swam deep enough to be swimming to other cave systems. Are you thinking mud skipper type thing? No, they're thinking that maybe it was either dropped by a bird okay, or humans. Like humans may have done it. Huh. You know, like people have lived in this area for thousands of years. Right. I mean, at that time period, we'd be talking about indig- indigenous. Yeah. Like yeah. indigenous people could have very well like moved them into the pool. Huh. Could have happened later. Like it, there's a wide window of time, but it could have been just people put them there. 
it's not really known. They haven't been in there that long, but I did like the title of this paper, Diabolical Survival, because their species name is Diabolus. Sure. Diabolical Survival in Death Valley, Recent Pupfish Colonization, Gene Flow and Genetic Assimilation in the Smallest Species Range on Earth. And that was by Christopher H. Martin et al. in Proceedings of the Royal Society of Biological Sciences in January of 2016. Hmm. Okay, getting into our ratings for this animal. For effectiveness, I'm giving the devil's whole pupfish. And I'm sorry, I'm giving them a 6 out of 10. All right. Yeah. Now, and it's not, they're, they're getting there. Mm-hmm, they're figuring mm-hmm. it out. Remember, they haven't been in this hole for very long. <laughs> they're still figuring it out. Yeah. <laughs> but still, the fact that this entire species is sort of like molded to the exact conditions in this one hole in the ground. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like they've had to kind of adapt in interesting ways. It's very it's very Amigara fault. This is my hole. It was made for me. Once more. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned earlier that the uh, water in Devil's Hole, it's not the easiest for a fish to live in. It is very hot. It is 92 degrees year yeah. round. It's very low in oxygen. This is actually something we talked about a while ago about how the warmer water is, the less dissolved oxygen it can hold in it. So hot water means less oxygen. Hmm. So they can't, there's just not a lot of oxygen available to them in that water. But also there's just very little to eat. I was wondering, what are they eating? Algae. They eat a lot of algae. They eat a lot of small invertebrates like snails and crustaceans. And like when I say crustaceans, I don't mean like crabs. I mean like little shrimpy looking dudes, basically. Tiny, tiny little invertebrates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's just not a lot to eat there. Like it's just all around not a fantastic place to live for a fish. They're probably at the top of the food chain there. I mean, they're only an inch long. They're like the biggest (laughs) thing in there. (laughs) They're living large. But these like super desolate conditions basically cause the fish's growth to be essentially permanently stunted. Right. So as a result of these conditions, the pupfish are a word called neotenous, which we've actually talked about, if you think all the way back years to the axolotl episode. Oh. How the axolotl is in this sort of permanent juvenile state. Oh, And just okay. never metamorphoses into like its adult form. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what's going on with the pupfish. So they keep these like juvenile traits even into adulthood. They're kind of like Peter Panning it. So when you compare them to other similar species of pupfish, they have really short bodies big heads and large eyes and they don't grow their pelvic fins Hmm. so like they're kind of just like permanently babies (laughs) almost but they can still reproduce and stuff they just they don't have a lot of resources to work with so i think their body is like you know what that's enough (laughs) that's good that's enough growing i guess (laughs) now In lab experiments, closely related pupfish have been raised in an environment that actually simulated the conditions in devil's hole. So giving them really warm temperatures, really low oxygen, and then like restricting food, basically. Mm -hmm. And they found that those similar species of pupfish exhibited the same traits that you later see in the devil's hole pupfish with the larger heads, the larger eyes, and the reduced or missing pelvic fins, Mm -hmm. you get those same traits from similar species when subjected to the same conditions. Wow. And that's even just throughout the course of their life, right? Like one individual, when it's raised in those conditions, kind of ends up sort of the same, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. You can basically like fast forward evolution in like a laboratory setting and see like, oh, well, that's the trait that made them like that. Well, I wonder if that means they could expect if they took a fish from the devil's hole and put it in optimum conditions, would it then? They're basically trying to because there's only there's only this one population. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. to conserve the population, like part of what they're trying to do is raise them in like captive settings or trying to like recreate them so they can introduce more to their population you know like they're it's like a conservation effort they're trying to like lab grow devil's whole pupfish to try to see if they can use it to boost their numbers up a little bit and they can get the same physical traits but they still can't replicate like the genotype basically Hmm. so it's like you're 
getting the same physical output, but it's not the same genetic code as the devil's hole pupfish. But it is interesting. And the paper on that was called Testing an Ecophysiological Mechanism of Morphological Plasticity in Pupfish and Its Relevance to Conservation Efforts for Endangered Devil's Hole Pupfish. That was by Sean C. Lima and Gabrielle A. Nevitt in the Journal of Experimental Biology in September of 2006. Wow. So we mentioned that, you know, this little guy is sort of the top of the food chain. Like, yeah, there's not a lot there for them to eat, but there's not also a lot there to eat them. This is where Player Two has entered the game. Oh, boy. A very recently introduced invasive water beetle has started picking off the pupfish. Oh, man. Because up until now, the pupfish have been, you know, they've been taking it easy. They've been kicking it, right? They're like, all right, there's no predators around here for us. Mm -hmm. We don't really need to worry about stuff like that. And now that one is is around to start eating them, they haven't really adapted to it yet. So Mm -hmm. the beetles kind of caught them lacking, I guess. (laughs) Now, this is especially a problem for them because of their surprisingly low, there's a word called fecundity, which means how much offspring you produce, basically. Mm. And they have very low fecundity. They don't yield a lot of offspring. Females only produce one egg per spawn, which they can have multiple spawns per mating season. Right. But still, just one egg at a time is really weird for fish. Right. They usually have these big, like, caviar-style you know, like clutches of like tons and tons of eggs. Not them, just the one. Yeah. Just like Magic School Bus told us. <laughs> and showed. Why did they do that? <laughs> That's <was> nasty. <laughs> anyway, so so one female pupfish can averages about twenty-four eggs for her entire lifespan. Hmm. And then a lot of those eggs don't even hatch. So it's just a really low reproductive rate for like what you would expect in a small fish like this. Mm-hmm. I guess for the last, you know, few hundred years, that's worked for them, right? Okay, yeah, maybe we can kind of kick it, kick it, take it easy. They wouldn't want to, they have such a small place that they live that they really would be more concerning for them not to overload it, right? Yeah. They'd be more interested in not overloading their resources. So an interesting sort of balancing act. Moving on to ingenuity for the devil's whole pupfish. I'm giving them an eight out of 10. Wow. They have to deal with something very, very unusual. And they've come up with a good way of figuring it out. So since devil's hole is nestled into rock shelves, it's just rock shelves on either side, the pool experiences a phenomenon I had never heard of called a seismic seiche. This is when there is seismic activity, Mm -hmm. like an earthquake, that causes the rocks around the cave to move, which makes the water slosh around <laughs> okay. inside the cave and can cause surprisingly large waves inside the pool. Yes. So imagine you look down into this pool that's completely enclosed, totally surrounded by just like, it's just a still pool in a cave and there's four foot waves in it. Yeah. That's spooky, right? (laughs) It's haunted. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. So in 2022, an earthquake 1,500 miles away in Mexico Mm -hmm. caused four-foot waves in Devil's Hole, which is enormous. And then in 2018, Devil's Hole experienced waves from an earthquake in Alaska. Wow. Right? So like, you know, seismic activity from sort of all over the world can cause these massive waves for this little one inch long fish who's just trying to make it work he's just trying trying his little best Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so they're being they're being tossed into a spin cycle basically you're just throwing them in and just sticking them in a blender (laughs) so they should be getting just like completely bodied on a regular basis by these seismic satias but the fish have been living here for a while so they've kind of figured out a thing or two. They kind of know the drill. Mm-hmm. So the fish, when they can sense motion from seismic activity, they know that the waves are going to be churning soon. Mm-hmm. They kind of can tell like, okay, it's about to start getting rough. So they swim lower into the deeper parts of the cave. Like they just swim down deeper than they would usually swim. Mm-hmm. And they wait there mm-hmm. until the waves die down, huh. which is really interesting. There was like underwater camera footage from like cameras they'd placed inside the cave and they watched the fish swim down right before seish waves, which was really interesting. Potential earthquake indicator. Yeah. (laughs) But then after the seish, once the waves die down, the pupfish go into a period of emergency spawning. Oh. (laughs) They go 
wild. <laughs> they just go absolutely bananas. They go back up to the surface and then males will frantically chase females. Once they find a female receptive to mating, then she lays her eggs and the male immediately fertilizes them. They're kind of like fast tracking. They're like, yeah. we got to make babies. We have to make more, which is almost like maybe they knew like we just had a bunch of waves. Some of us probably died. We need to like huh. replenish, I guess. Huh. Really weird. This is sort of like panic mating. <laughs> like we got to make up for losses. <laughs> Wild. Very interesting. <laughs> Maybe the surviving it gave them a new appreciation of life. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, that's such a, a joie de vivre, just that had that near death experience. And they're like, oh I man, to, I really need to make the most of this. I need to live. What am I doing with my life? I need to get my act together. <laughs> But their options are limited. Yes. <laughs> now, the waves and the movement from the sage can actually help the pupfish by knocking down sediment and potential nutrients hmm. down from like off of the cave walls and stuff like that into the water that they otherwise might not have had access to. Or it can even clear away space on the rock ledge that the pupfish need to breed on. Hmm. It could clear that surface away if there was like debris on it or something. So hmm. sometimes the waves can actually help them a little bit. Also, barn owls often like to roost in the walls of the cave, and sometimes the sage will knock owl pellets down into the water, and oh. the owl pellets are, that's good eats okay. for the little critters in the water. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's really interesting. Also, due to having lived with no predators for so many generations, the pupfish have no fear. <laughs> They're very docile and they tend to just not flee from people. So people that dive in the cave have been charmed by their inquisitive approach. Yeah. So the pupfish will just like swim right up to them and be like, hey. It's basically a, a giant alien that's come I, to visit. I have no reason to think you're going to eat me. <laughs> Nothing else here eats me. You probably won't. <laughs> so it's a charming little guy. And finally, for aesthetics, I'm giving them an 8 out of 10. They're a shiny baby. Oh. It's their baby. They're shiny. What, what more do you want? It's cute. They have these very like rounded fins and they're shiny and blue. And it's, that's not important. That's not the important part. We need to move on. I have a lot of, of other stuff to say. All right. So conservation for the devil's hole pupfish. This is a complete rabbit hole. You could get lost in this topic. And mm -hmm. I did for a long time. They are as you may have expected, critically endangered. Right. Over the last 20 years, their population average has been around 90 individuals. Wow. 90 pupfish is like the average for the last like two decades. Huh. So going all the way back to 1952. In 1952, Devil's Hole was made part of the Death Valley National Park in order to protect the pool and the pupfish. In 1967, the Devil's Hole pupfish was one of the first... 84 species granted federal protection under the Endangered Species Act. Wow. Yeah, so the sort of original Endangered Species Act specifically listed out these 84 species, including podcast alumni, grizzly bears, Florida manatees, oh, yeah. alligators, oh, yeah. and California condors. Awesome. And the devil's hole pupfish. <laughs> Well, the alligator was a success story. That was. That was a big, a major success story. They're not even on the list anymore. Like, yeah. They're not even endangered. They're they're good. Yeah. <laughs> they're set. <laughs> they were like the OG endangered species. Mm. They were like in that first, they were a first round draft pick of <laughs> the Endangered Species Act. So an interesting sort of like role in the er very early environmentalism like right. phase of American politics. Now, during the late 60s, the state sold large amounts of land in Ash Meadows, which is like the, it's now a wildlife refuge, but at the time, like they were selling these large tracts of land in Ash Meadows to a corporate farm called Spring Meadows Incorporated. Hmm. Being a farm, they naturally started drilling wells into the ground and extracting water, groundwater right. for these farms. Was this area already known as Death Valley at the time? Yes. Interesting. Yes, it was. This was like Death Valley National Monument. It's not called National Park, but yeah. it was called National Monument at the time. But Interesting yes. place to set up shop for a farm. Well, I mean, people live there, <laughs> right? Like, you gotta yeah. feed them somehow. <laughs> so they begin drilling wells into the ground, extracting groundwater. Now, since all of these aquifers are connected, taking water out caused the water level in Devil's Hole to begin dropping. Mm -hmm. Now... This is very bad news for the pupfish because there's one 
rock shelf in Devil's Hole that they rely on exclusively for foraging and for laying their eggs and spawning. Mm-hmm. The one rock ledge on the planet <laughs> right. that they rely on to survive, they cannot persist as a species without access to this one rock ledge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the water level starts dropping, rapidly approaching that rock ledge yeah where it could very well fall below the rock ledge and then the pupfish would no longer have access to where they need to forage and breed Mm -hmm. so the federal government (laughs) organized studies and identified three major wells that were most affecting the groundwater initially they came to an agreement that the farm would stop using those wells and also not overdraw from other wells like to compensate for it Mm -hmm. so that the devil's hole water level would stop dropping and hopefully eventually fill back up that didn't work like they stopped using those wells and the water level kept falling like Hmm. it it didn't help so the federal government actually went back and said that they would need to stop using all of their wells you have to leave the groundwater alone so that devil's hole can fill back up Mm -hmm. so spring meadows took the case to the supreme court yeah as the case is called capert versus united states now this issue was extremely controversial it was sort of emblematic of this growing like early environmentalist sentiment mm-hmm. like you really didn't have environmentalism at a large scale yet like and environmentalism was sort of like really really early on the political scene at this time so this issue sort of was emblematic of it like the tension between the prioritization of the economy versus the environment right like people typically would fall on one side or the other. Like, which one do you think is more important, the economy or the environment? Right. So locals would display dueling bumper stickers touting either save the pupfish or kill the pupfish. Huh. Yeah, you'd have these sort of like, sort of local campaigns to either save or kill the pupfish. Some people even threatened to dump poison into Devil's Hole to mm. kill the pupfish. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're like, well, I'll just make it a non-issue. Like, if, if the pupfish are dead, then we don't have to worry about this. Yeah, it's very rational, insane. Normal behavior, <laughs> normal activities. Uh-huh. And, and like, the anger directed at the fish certainly wasn't about the fish itself, right? Like, it's not about the fish. It's really, like, an expression of valuing human economic interests over the preservation of a non-human species, right? Like, it, it's not about the fish, right? I, I don't think people really cared that much about the actual fish itself. I think this was more about, like, where do we fall on do we value the economy or do we value the environment? Like, right. 1950s, 1960s America being totally the poster child. Super chill about <laughs> everything. Super cool about it. Let me just Google when um, gas stopped being leaded. <laughs> Full of lead. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I will say the Supreme Court did in fact decide that when Devil's Hole was reserved as a national monument, that that also included, and this is a quote from the ruling, water rights in unappropriated, appurtenant water sufficient to maintain the level of the pool to preserve its scientific value. So in other words, when the United States declared Devil's Hole as a national monument, that included the rights to the water necessary to fill it. Mm. So the federal government having claim to the hole and the pool itself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. meant that they also had claim to the groundwater that filled the pool. Yeah. Which meant that the farm did not have the right to extract that groundwater and use it for their wells. From what I understand, <laughs> water rights <laughs> could, oh my God. could fill textbooks alone. There are, there have to be. Like, water rights are wild. This yeah. this was the point where you saw me, like, having to wrap up my note. I was like, I can't. I can't yeah. do more of this. I cannot go any further and, into and this. That's, and that's often because that often spans across state borders. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because of how large of a scale that, that is. Well, because this is in a portion of Death Valley that is in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Most of it's in California. Mm-hmm. Like most of the national park is in California. But this basically meant that like nobody could use that groundwater because they needed it to fill Devil's Hole. It was a huge decision. 
enormous case for environmentalism in like American politics. And to this day, there are like barbed wire fences around Devil's Hole that people still get in trouble for breaking into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you cannot mess with these pupfish. <laughs> it was very much not allowed. Somebody went to federal prison for falling in Devil's Hole like a few years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. in Wild. Just <laughs> so much like political drama over this one inch long fish in a hole (laughs) you're wet and also under arrest (laughs) how do you feel now i had one more little piece of dramatic flair to wrap up with you remember how earlier i said that the water that wells up now in the hole is from about ten thousand years ago Mm -hmm. a 2010 study from brigham young university suggests that much of that water is flowing from what is now the Nevada test site, which is where the United Mm. States has been testing nuclear bombs for decades. Yeah. So that whole area, including the water that is flowing from it, is now highly, highly radioactive. Well then. So this means that in about 10 to 15,000 years, highly, highly radioactive water is going to be welling up from the ground under Death Valley. And that all of that groundwater is just going to be full of radiation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So better figure that out, I guess, <laughs> in the next. Death Valley squared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting sort of like, uh-oh, our actions of, you know, the last few decades are going to be monumentally catastrophic in a few thousand years. And we have to kind of prepare for that i guess like i guess having the foresight might help prepare for that but yeah totally and i got that from an article (laughs) about like the study you can look up the study but i read an article about it and it's called oasis near death valley fed by ancient aquifer under nevada test site study shows and that was from byu.edu on june 1st of 2010 Mm -hmm. sorry i have no words (laughs) sorry later us um, yeah, I really feel for the Devil's Hole pupfish because like it didn't ask to get put in the hole. Clearly, right. it didn't want to be. Th- it probably also doesn't want to be there, but mm-hmm. it's just like playing the hand. It's been somehow <laughs> miraculously might not be the right word, but it's been dealt <laughs> this terrible, terrible hand, and it's just mm-hmm. trying to like survive and make the most of it. And everyone's mad at it. <laughs> like the fish is like, I, I also don't want to be in this hole. <laughs> get me out of here. <laughs> You did what to the water? <laughs> Bro, <laughs> I just showed up here. I, I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> now, I do like to end things on sort of a, a positive and uplifting note. That, that was a lot of doom and gloom, but there's a, a sunny note to end on. The last population count that I could find, which was posted by the National Park Service in September of 2022, was 263 pupfish, hey. which was the highest count in 19 years. And the um, people that were doing the count, like going down there and like examining the pupfish for the count, said they seemed robust and in very good health. Oh. And that they were doing really well. They were swimming real strong and seemed like a good, healthy population. So. Did you happen to see how often they do this count? It looked like they do it every like year or two, hmm. maybe like every couple of years or so. Um, I tried to find one from this year, but I couldn't find one. I don't know if that's because they haven't done one this year or just maybe they haven't published the results of it. But the one that I read from last year seemed like they were doing quite well. Quite awesome. well. So at least a positive note to end on for the the past, present, and future of the Devil's Hole Pupfish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wild, incredible story. That's the devil's whole pup fish. Well, thanks, babe. Thanks. <laughs> it's a roller coaster. You saw me like I was so stressed doing these notes, not just because this is like stressful stuff to read about, but because I was like, how am I going to fit this into a segment? <laughs> this is so much. It's <laughs> so, fun. It delves yeah. into some topics we don't normally get to i hate learning geology (laughs) i love geology all my rock nerds i love you i can't do it i don't have the head for rocks i just don't (laughs) i don't have it i'm not good at rock stuff but that's okay we figured it out we hope that you enjoyed this episode we hope you had as much fun as we did 
I feel like we had some fun today. (laughs) That was evident. Yes. If you liked what you heard, we would love a good review on your podcast app of choice. We're also on social media. If you'd like to come hang out with us, we're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Discord. I've been getting more active on threads lately. If anyone's on threads, you can come hang out with us there. If you have a cool animal you'd like to hear us talk about on the show, send those to me at ellen at justthezooofus.com. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their show, alongside their other wonderful shows on the network, like they just released a brand new one that's called Black People Love Paramore. Very fun podcast. Very excited about that. If you'd like to learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show, you can go check that out at MaximumFun.org. And finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music, which we love a lot. It's very good. It's a delight. It's a jam. I hope that it sets the tone. Because here it comes. Here it is. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.